The second lesson comes to us this morning from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verses 1 to 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, "Uh, What will I do now? Now that my master is taking my position away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. I've decided what I will do. So that when I, di- when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly and make it fifty. Then he asked another, How much do you owe? And he replied, A hundred containers of wheat. And he said, take your bill, make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, um, one of my least favorite stereotypes about being a person of faith is the stereotype of having it all together. Often, to be in any religious tradition, um, often that is associated with uh, strong moral values an ethical foundation, and I think that that is something that the community of faith offers us. But what often goes along with that is that we tend to think that having strong moral, having a strong and moral ethical foundation uh, means that somehow each of us as individuals has our life all tied up without any loose ends, right? And that's just not true. Because whether we're a part of a community of faith or not, It doesn't make life any less of a puzzle for each one of us in this room. It doesn't mean that we will know where all of the pieces are supposed to end up. It doesn't mean that everything adds up in the the way that we thought that it was going to be. And so while I think that this whole idea of having a moral fabric is something that is okay, it's something that we can sort of say yes, all of the religious institutions within our culture sort of hold some sort of ethical framework that we're working with, this can be true in addition to the fact that we as people in all of our communities of faith 
live real human lives where the reality is, is that we do not have it all together, right? Especially pastors. Like, the last thing we need to do is assume that our pastors have it all together. Like, pastors are people too, right? And I'm not just speaking for myself, but all of the religious leaders within our, within our city, within our nation, we are all folks who are trying to figure it out just like you, right? Just like all of us in this room and all of us within our city. We don't always have it together as people and as people of faith. And today, what I want to help us understand is that this, I think, is what our texts are up to. This is what our texts are kind of trying to unleash for us today. Because our texts are asking two questions, as I see them. And we're working with Psalm 113 today, which is the psalm that we read. And then we had it sung beautifully through the anthem um, and we're going through a series where we're singing the psalms, so we're going to be hearing psalms over and over and over again. And then our gospel text is paired with it, and it's Luke 16, and they're asking these sort of two questions, which is, where is God? This is the question of Psalm 113, right? Where is God when the arc of the universe does not seem to bend towards justice? Where is God? And if you reread that psalm, you can see that pattern because the psalmist starts with this fantastic declaration of the God who holds up the heavens, the God who is the one who holds the foundations of the earth as the sun rises from day to day. And then the psalmist makes a pivot, right, to those questions about what does that God look like? And then the question of our parable text, the question that Jesus shares with his disciples, which is, where is God, not just when things aren't going well within the arc of the universe, but when things aren't going well for you? Where is God when things are not adding up for you? Because sometimes it can be that, it, that I mean, not often, but let's just play a game. Let's pretend that the arc of the universe is actually moving just fine, but sometimes all of the pieces within your life are just falling to shambles, Right? So those two things don't always align. They don't always come together. And so our scripture today sets up these two questions. Where is God in the big picture? And then where is God in the micro? Where is God in the micro? And I think that these are really important theological questions for us to work with at any stage. Because one of the things that I observe as a pastor, and you let me know if you see this being true in your own life, is that as our lives change and as they increase in complication, to put it mildly, that's sort of a nice way or a diplomatic way of saying when everything falls apart, we tend to withdraw from our communities of faith, right? Not always, not always. So it's, you know, it, there are exclusions to this, to this pattern. But many times, people tend to withdraw from their communities of faith. And I've done a lot of thinking about this and have experienced this quite a bit, and I think it's completely understandable and in a way sort of expected, but I think that it also makes me ask the question, why? Why does this happen? And it makes me, as a pastor and as somebody who works with our sacred text, wonder 
what theological truths or convictions that we, and I don't just mean here at Northminster, but that we as a Christian enterprise, as a Christian project, what truths or convictions are we nurturing that enforce this understanding that we're supposed to have it all together? Okay, what are we holding up as sort of a theological straw argument that teaches us that, in fact, we as the community of faith should have it all together? And how can we break through those sort of theological straw arguments so that we can get a better understanding of what the text says and so that we can get a better understanding of what it means to be human? Because my experience has taught me is that as we can go deeper into the text, that we can go deeper into our own hearts and into the hearts of what it means to be human. Okay, that's why we study scripture. We study scripture to learn who God is, but as we learn who God is, it teaches us who we are. And as we learn who we are, we learn what we are capable of within the context in which we live. That's why I'm still a pastor, okay? Because I believe that this work is important and it actually does something. So our psalm today is a halal psalm. It's a halal psalm. I don't expect you to know what that is, but we're going through a series on the psalm, so I'm going to be teaching you some words that help us get a grip on what's going on within the psalms. A halal psalm, if you think about the word hallelujah, H-A-L-L-E-L, that word just means praise. That's all it means. And if you go through the psalms, you'll see that there are a ton of songs that use that word praise. Okay, that's the same word, halal, and then what we do, uh, or no, not what we do, but what the text has done is, is it, just, uh, a, it also attaches a little word for God at the end, so hallelujah just means praise the Lord, that's all that it means, and a halal psalm is a psalm of praise, but it's situated within the center section of the psalms because these are the psalms that the community used to sing as they came together around the Passover table. Okay. Now, I want to ask you, for those who have grown up in the church, or maybe you haven't grown up in the church, you've just grown up within our sort of peripherally sort of Christian culture, do you get to know a Christmas carol by singing it with your community, or do you get to know it by reading the text? <laughs> reading the text? Both. Singing. Yes. So many times... And this always happens like with the third and fourth verses of Christmas hymns, right? Because everybody knows the first two because we hear them all the time. We internalize them. We know them. And then we get to like verse three, which we've never heard of. And we have to go back to the text and be like, oh, yeah, that's what that one is. So that's what these texts are within this part of the center part of the Psalms. They're sort of the canon of Christmas carols for the Jewish community that is coming around the Passover table. And the reason why I want to highlight that is because these are psalms that help the community embody not so much in creed, okay? We've been talking a lot about how we know that we have the history of the Reformation in our bones and the history of the Reformation is all about creed, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is that people learn these truths, they learn this understanding by taking it into their body through music. That's how these songs that we got, we don't sing the Apostles' Creed for grief, you know, we, just, we don't. Who has sung like the, the Belhar, or not the Belhar, but let's go back to something else. Who has sung like the Geneva Confession? Tim has, apparently. <laughs> Thank you. You can sing it for us later. 
But we don't sing those because even though they're a part of our history, they're not part of the canon that we need to embody. But see, these psalms, these were part of the canon that the community needed to embody. And so they needed to sing them. And so what is it that this psalm teaches them that they need to know about God when they come around that Passover table year after year after year? What is it that this psalm needs to teach them? It teaches them that the one who created the cosmos, that the God who sustains history is characterized not by strength, but by weakness. Not by strength, but by weakness. Okay, because remember, as the psalm gets to the end, it's talking about this God who holds sort of the chorus of history and sort of by the foundation of God's spirit. And then we get this sentence that God lifts the needy from the ash heap and gives the barren woman a home. And those are very specific Claims. And this is the way that the psalmist wants us to embody that we know who the ruler of the universe is, not by the ability to identify with power, but by the ability to identify with weakness. So it's a crucial theological understanding that we cannot escape within our scripture that God is the God who places the accent of God's presence within those in history who are the most needy. Okay? That that is the place where God lives. Now I want to say also, and this is just an aside, that sometimes we read these psalms and we are in a very dark place. That we are in the ash heap. Or I have other friends who have read these psalms during a time when they are going through a time of barrenness. And it can feel exhausting to read these pieces and to see these promises that God is somehow supposed to be lifting us up from a place and we are somehow not experiencing it. And that is a very real truth. It's a very real truth. And I don't want to minimize that or ignore it in any way. But I just want to offer this. But sometimes all that these words can do is shape our imagination. Sometimes all that they do is shape our imagination. And as they shape our imagination, they help curate and build our longings so that we can long for a day when that reality is made manifest. So even though we're illuminating this psalm that makes this promise and this claim that God's presence is on the side of history where folks feel as if everything is falling apart. What we do not want to make the theological mistake of saying is that therefore God will change you in the way that you anticipate. Because sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't. And we've all walked alongside the folks where it's not happening. And it creates theological crisis. So what we need to do is to say, yes, these words make that claim, but sometimes that claim only operates within the realm of our imagination so that together we can come to a place and say, yes, we long for that reality, though we, don't, we do not yet even see it. And that's a place where we can live in theological authenticity, right? And not a saccharine sense of sentiment which we can sometimes slip into accidentally.
But the Bible is relentless about helping us understand that God is in a place where everything is falling apart. I want to turn now to our gospel text. All sorts of things are falling apart in our gospel text. Like, everything is falling apart. And if you read all the commentaries, the commentators are falling apart, too. They're like, we don't know what's going on here. Stewards are fired. All sorts of best practices are violated. You never want to use this text sort of like for your business manifesto. That's not really what it's up to here. It's not that sort of text. And then all of this is sort of followed up by the sort of admirable scoundrel, right? Um, where we come to this surprising end where the scoundrel is sort of praised and even celebrated. And then we get some questionable advice about making friends in strange places for the purpose of eternity. So the question in this text is what the heck is going on? What is going on? Why? Well, keep in mind, if we were to think about Scripture as podcasts, that episode 15 was the prodigal son. Right? Episode 15 was the prodigal son. Now we're on 16. So we've just been building on the story of the prodigal. And in the story of the prodigal, the same theme is happening that was happening in, verse, in uh, chapter 16. The theme of the prodigal son is out of death comes life. Out of endings comes new beginnings. Out of a place where it seems as if everything has disappeared comes something that can start again. Right? And so Jesus is now picking up on those same themes as he goes into chapter 16. Out of the end comes the beginning. Because we've got a lot of endings in chapter 16. The steward has received an end. He has received his termination, and he knows that it is the end of what he feels like he's capable of within the culture in which he's living. And so it is the steward who then, out of that space of nothing, right, because a termination was really the end. I mean, there's no, like, unemployment in the first century, right? And this is a guy, so there's even harder uh, kind of cultural, um, he would be dealing with something difficult than, than a widow who would have been taken in by other family members. So this is somebody who has to figure out what to do. Right? There's no backup plan for him. So when he receives his termination, that's the end. And then out of this space of nothing, He's received the declaration that it is over for him. And out of this space of nothing, he makes a radical and crazy and questionable decision to act. And then it's the steward who from this act of craziness, then at the end of the day, receives commendation from the landowner. And I think that this is a really important and, in a sense, foundational parable because what it continues to remind us and teach us about the God of the cosmos is that this is a God who sees an end as a beginning. This is a God who sees crisis not as judgment but as opportunity. This is a God who sees a point of death as a place of resurrection. 
And we need to remember that of all things, that this is the theological foundation of our sacred text because we are living in a world of endings. We just are, okay? We're not going to pretend they're not there. They are. We don't know what they look at yet. They haven't come. But we are living in a world of endings. And we have got to figure out what our theological perspective is around what it means to be a community of faith in a world of endings. And we cannot play sort of the saccharine, sentimental perspective that says that everything is going to be okay. Because that is not what the scripture is telling us. The scripture is telling us that God is a God who lives at the place where the ending starts and makes it a beginning. Not that the endings go away. Okay, that's the place where we get confused. We think, oh, there's no endings. No, there are. There are endings. But we live in a theological world where the God who sees the endings also can create out of those endings a beginning. And that's the truth of the psalm, and it's the truth of the parable. And how timely that we receive this text in the middle of all of the rallies around climate change, in the middle of all of the protests around Hong Kong, in the middle of all of the alarming data that's coming to us about the Amazon rainforest and the Arctic Circle, how timely that we receive this text in the middle of all of this because it gives us the conversation to say we recognize the truth of science and still we believe that there can be a beginning. Let us come together to make that happen. Right? And that's what our younger people are trying to help us to see. That's what they're trying to help us to see. Let not theology stop that progress, right? That would be a mistake. The text does not teach us about a manipulative God who is somehow clamoring for the end to bring a close to the world of humanity's of humanity, but the text is instead saying that out of the end comes the beginning. We've been reading the Psalms. We've been reading poetry. Who better to teach us about endings and beginnings than an Irish poet? Somebody who was born in County Cork. If you know Ireland, you know that's at the very south of the island. And then spent a good portion of his life doing work in rec of reconciliation in Belfast. Padraig Otuma. This is his piece called The North Urn of Ireland. It is both a dignity and a, di and a difficulty to live between these names. Perceiving politics in the syntax of the state, and at the end of the day, the reality is that whether we change or whether we stay the same, these questions will remain. Who are we to be with one another? And... How are we to be with one another 
and what to do with all those memories and all those funerals. And what about those present whose past was blasted far beyond their future? I wake, you wake, she wakes, he wakes, they wake, we wake, and take this troubled beauty forward. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we trust that you give us a text that makes the end the beginning. Help us to live that way with the courage and the bravery and the boldness that it takes. May your spirit lead us forward. Amen.